Last week we looked at uh, what the purpose uh, was for creation, the biblical purpose of that, and hit that pretty hard. We've been looking at what it means to have a Christian worldview, how to develop one, how to keep one. Uh, we've looked at uh, defining really a Christian worldview as a biblical worldview or thinking like Jesus, uh, and so this is what permeates all this. Most of these, a little different uh, even for all of us a little bit because we're, we're kind of looking at... Uh, we're not looking at one text and going through it, which is kind of the normal way we do it. We're kind of banking around. So you, I mean, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along the 47 scriptures we're going to look at, or however many there are. Um, it's a little different. Uh, uh, hopefully all of the scriptures that we use are always in context and not taken out of context. But what is the, the purpose and nature of humanity? This could be a little bit different sermon because it's a two-part sermon, uh, but the first part only takes about a minute. Um, and don't get disappointed. The second part is longer than that. So, uh, the, what is the purpose? You know that you know we always said we walk walk through this a little bit at the very beginning, um, but I think First Corinthians ten kind of gives us the purpose, at least a a little quick summary of it. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Uh, that is the purpose. Uh, God says, we saw this last week, we exist to glorify him, to honor him, to do what he asks of us because of his character and all the other things we're going to talk about in his nature today. So along with that is to enjoy your connection to him uh, and others. In fact, in, in Philippians, it actually says, we went through that uh, last summer, uh, Philippians says it's almost a command. In fact, it is a command that we're supposed to be joyful. Well, obviously, I don't know about you, but there are times when emotion is hard to conjure up. Well, joy is not only an emotion. It's not just mere happiness. It's the fact that you're, you can be joyous through anything because of your connection with Christ. Uh, and so that's, so enjoying that connection in others. We see that with the greatest commandment, which we'll be looking at again. So, so how do we do that? Well, you go back to Deuteronomy again. This is where the base is. This is essentially for Israel. That, that, you know, what does the Lord require of you? It's always neat to see those scriptures because they say, okay, well, this, this is going to be important. Well, what are we supposed to do? To, to fear the Lord your God. We'll, we'll talk about that uh, today a bit. To walk in all his ways. To love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for good. So that's it. And th well, that's Old Testament, but essentially we see in the New Testament, th the church is told to do the same thing that Israel's supposed to do. So all of these things Jesus brings up uh, in the same context, using a lot of Old Testament scripture to show us this is it. This is what we're required. We, we look a lot for purpose, but as we talked about last week, it's quite silly for a being to look for purpose outside of its creator. And a lot of people do that. Uh, again, that's why it's so important, and we talked about last week, is did God create you? If he did, then there's something you should probably look at. Why did he do that? What are you here for? It's all in there. I mean, if you're trying to find the purpose of life, you, it's pretty quick in the Bible. Um, it's not that hard. Now, it's, it's, it's life-changing, and it's something that we have to continue to develop to understand, but the, the, the base is easy. So there's the first part. That was actually two minutes, so I got a little rambly, sorry. But that, that's it. But how do we do this? Well, this is coming down to the second part of the sermon, nature. And this is a very important thing to kind of know 
theologically as a Christian or even a seeker as a Christian, what, what, what am I like? What is my makeup? How did God make us? You know, because if you can find out, we can look into the world, we can see there's all types of problems, right? I mean, you got personal problems, we got society problems, there's problems everywhere. You can look at the glass half empty if you want. There's also good things. But how do we deal with these? Depends a lot on where we think, why we think the problem is there. And this is the big thing. Are we? These are the two main ways to look at it. And it's out there in different religious systems and ideologies that we have. Is mankind basically good? And then for Christians, then Jesus helps us feel better and find a plan for our life. Is that what the Bible is mainly for? Now, that's very popular. And I'm not saying the people who teach this are necessarily doing it to be deceptive. They might just be doing it because they really don't understand. They really maybe haven't looked at God's Word enough to know. The other one are we basically evil. You know, this is really too hard, right? That we're enemies of God and Jesus saves us from eternal death. Which one is it? It makes a big difference. on when This is the key to American Christianity and the problems thereof. Most churches that are preaching a false gospel or an incomplete gospel believe the first one. The people were born basically good. And if that's true, then self-help and self-confidence will work and Jesus can simply be our helper. And that's out there. Come to Jesus and he will help you with your problems. Come to Jesus and he'll find a plan for your life. Come to Jesus and, you know, he'll walk with you through all. And I'm not saying any of those are necessarily untrue, but that's not the way the Bible does it ever. We have zero examples of that type of, of telling people to come to Jesus. Why? Well, because mainly we start with the wrong problem and then we get the wrong solution. And that's what this is, sermon is going to, what is the nature and purpose of humanity? Once you know that, then all of a sudden, these songs we sing about Jesus and the cross, the songs we sing about eternal life and salvation and connection with him through the Spirit, all that stuff makes a lot more sense than just, okay, I'll take Jesus when I need him. It's different. But look at these scriptures. We'll just give you a few. Is that, this, is that the way it's set up? Look at James 4.4. 4. You adulterous people. And James is an epistle. It's not, this isn't even an Old Testament prophet. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So there, it's juxtaposed, right? Now, the cross is over. I mean, the world can do nice things and Christians can do bad things. But that's, that's not the goal, right? <laughs> but this is the problem. You know, who are we trying to please? That's a big problem. Are you trying to please the Lord or someone else or yourself? Ephesians 2, great, we always use 8 and 9 is what the gospel is, but we all once lived, we all there are all of the people that he's writing to in Ephesus, the Christians, the believers, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And that is everywhere in the Bible, like the rest of mankind. We see it in John 3.18. We see it everywhere. Your default destination as a human being born into this world is hell. That's, that's the biblical view. And, people, and why does it change? Because people don't like it. And I'm not necessarily, I don't even know whether I like it or not. It's kind of irrelevant. 
I don't like the fact we haven't got much rain lately. But my dislike of it will not make it rain today. And my dislike of the fact, and whether I should, and I think you probably should start liking it because it's the way God uh, created it. Uh, and, and, and our great, 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 no, how many greats you need? Uh, grandparents sinned and our nature changed. But everyone is a children of wrath which I think the best definition of wrath I've seen is from John Stott, who's passed on now, but God's settled response to evil. And the fact that he didn't wipe us all out is because he's gracious and loving. Uh, and Galatians 5, uh, the sinful nature, which a lot of this is a newer translation, it's the NLT, the, the older translation, or some of the flesh, and it's not talking about your, your flesh, it's talking about your nature. Uh, and that's why this kind of cleans it up. It's just the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. We have some freedom, obviously, but we still have a nature that's not perfect. It's not complete. That happens in the new heaven and the new earth. But this is the key, and we'll see it throughout all Christianity. I don't know, you guys know what Israel means? It's base? You know, you know when, when they got that name? It was after Jacob had that really kind of weird wrestling match with the angel or Yahweh or both, or he gets his hip knocked out, you know. The, uh, you have struggled with God. So Israel just means struggle with God. Isn't that weird, you know? The problem is, if you're not struggling with sin, then you're probably in trouble. Because that means you're probably giving in all the time. And it's a struggle. It's going to be a struggle. Are you going to fight or not? You know, Jesus shows us by being tempted in every way, yet without sin, how to do it, and we do have the power to do that. But a lot of times it's not, you know... Forces, forces of evil, which we'll talk about next week, uh, they don't have to do much for a lot of people because they got them, it's so brainwashed into thinking something that's unbiblical. You know, why bother with people? You're already on the road to destruction. Why would I say anything to you? So this is in there everywhere. The Bible clearly teaches that we are born with a sinful nature, an enemy of God, an object of God's wrath. If you don't have that, the rest of the gospel really doesn't matter. It doesn't make any sense. The cross just barely makes sense. And that's why you see, like, American Christian cults don't even put crosses in their buildings, and I ask one of them, why? Well, we don't want to accentuate the negative. Well, the cross is negative now. Well, there's negative aspects to it. It was an evil people that put him on there. I'm sure it didn't feel good. And it's somewhat cosmically sad that it had to happen. But the cross is good. The cross is a solution. And not putting it in your worship center is completely misguided. But that particular pseudo-Christian cult uh, believes the first one. We're basically good. And so you, if you're basically good, who can save who, right? You can save yourself. And why does this, well, it stems from our nature. We have a sinful nature. That's what you see it in, in Psalm 22. From the womb, I was sinful. And I'm a worm. I don't know if you knew that, but in most cultures, being called a worm is not a compliment. 
Is it there? Is it now? So, but his nature is holy. No unholy being can have a personal connection with him. You ever think about that? You can't have it. Something has to be done with your unholiness before that connection becomes real. And you think about all other personal connections, by nature, they're equal. You know, we have that in Declaration of Independence, right? All men are created equal. Well, that's true. But with God, that's not true, is it? Our connection to him is going to be different. You know, nowhere in the Bible that says you're supposed to love your significant other with all your heart, might, mind, and strength is the greatest commandment because that's not it. It's God that you do that with. And the, the second one's in there, right? But that's the second one. So because of the nature of fallen humans and the nature of Yahweh, God's love for people, and you've got to get this. We, we, we don't want to take, sometimes people say, well, let me talk about God's love, and then I'll talk about God's holiness, and I'll talk about God's grace, and then his sovereignty. They, they don't, they're not that delineated because God's love for people is primarily shown in his grace. That's the extension of it, and you get it in John 3.16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes him will not perish. This is how did he show the love? Grace. Why? Well, because he's a holy being and you're not. If you're going to have a connection, you got to have grace. Without grace, you just can't get there because you can't save yourself because your nature is not, you don't have the ability to do it. So this is the good news of the gospel. You see it in Romans 5. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, it, it makes no sense to tell people, you can come to Grace Church once you get cleaned up. What? No, God doesn't, doesn't clean his fish before he catches them. And I hope you don't do that if you catch fish. That's really hard to do from a distance. You have to have a really long knife. You catch, then you clean. You know, we should be a place where people can come and, you know, if they should never feel that they're not worthy of grace. They're not worthy of God. None of us are. It goes on. That since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, the cross, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So it's both saved to eternal life and from eternal damnation. You're saved to something and you're saved from something. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, th through whom we have now received reconciliation. And the, he goes on in chapter 6 about how we can not be a slave to, to sin, but a slave to Christ, a, a servant of Christ. And this is the key when it comes to grace. And I think this is a big problem. Again, you've you got to understand the nature. Very clear. The Bible's not ambiguous here. If anybody teaches you that man is basically good, they're not getting that from the Bible. I mean, you can believe what you want, but we try to back it up with the biblical text. In the Bible, truly following Jesus always starts with repentance. Every time. Because you can't get grace if you don't repent. And that's why these, these other ways of doing it, I think, can be... Can somebody get saved in it? Sure. I mean, people can come to Christ in a variety of ways. But why don't we use the method we're given? 
I'm always do this. If you if you go through what you're going to tell somebody about coming becoming a uh, you know a, getting a, a personal connection with 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 Jesus or with with Father through through the Son and by the power of the Spirit, if you can just take out Jesus and put in Muhammad or, and a lot of times they don't even talk about Jesus. I've heard it. Well-meaning people. They'll say something like, "Are you you know do you feel you feel like this life isn't." isn't something that you thought it was going to be. Do you, feel, do you feel sad? Are you going through struggles? Well, God can help you with that. And he can help you with those struggles. And you can, you can have him walk through you with those struggles. And you can, you can have him be and love you and show that you have purpose and all this. And that's, I'm not saying any of that's untrue. But you notice that's never the way anybody in the Bible starts it. Because at that point, what I just said, you could pretty much put any God you want in there. Right? I mean, heck, you can jump on a couch and get help, right? And I'm not saying that's all bad. I don't mean that. But we can help each other out. But notice there, nowhere in there is there a call to the fact that you're guilty before a holy God. And without that, if you don't feel guilty, you will not repent. This is a problem. Mark 1.15, very first words come out of Jesus' mouth in the very first gospel. Jesus came into Galilee saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Notice the way he didn't start. I love you and have a plan for your life. I think the first one's true. I don't know about the second one. I don't see that in there anywhere, but we'll talk about that in a minute. And then later in Mark 6, it's, well, we've got these guys. We've called them. We've taught them for a while. We're going to send them out. And they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Hmm. Seems very consistent. Luke 13, there's a big discussion. You always wondered, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? And so somebody comes to Jesus and a group of them come and say, well, what about all those people that got killed by Pilate? And he mingled their blood with the sacrifice, some sort of Roman way of ordering things. He says, are, you, are they less sinners than you? Or more sinners than you? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. In my opinion, he's using that as a type. You know, it doesn't really make any difference. If you're not, if you're not in Christ, if you're not in me, well, how you get killed is kind of irrelevant. You're going to die, you're, you're going to live, you're going to die, the rest of it doesn't matter. Or those 18 whom the Tower of Siloam, so we got like a natural, or maybe just bad architecture, I don't know how this worked, it was like Pisa or whatever, um, the Tower of Salem fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will always li likewise be. Repent, 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 repent. Over and over and over again. Very first sermon Peter gives and after Pentecost, and he's filled with the Spirit, and he goes to Joel 2 and uses that as a text, and he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Later, Paul goes to Mars Hill in the Areopagus and talks to all these smart guys on the hill and starts with the unknown God and eventually says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You getting the feel of this yet? And this is just a small sample size. And finally, I think this one, you know, kind of more of an epistle way of looking at it. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. This is the problem, folks. If somebody, the Holy Spirit's working on somebody, 
Maybe somebody here, the Holy Spirit's working on. And you understand that you're guilty before a holy God. And we come to them and tell them that God can help their life be better as our main way of doing the gospel. If they know they're guilty, they want to find out how to get unguilty, how to get acquitted, how to be seen pure in God's eyes. And how do you do that? Repent. Change your mind. Look at Christ, look away from sin, you will get a new nature, you'll get the Holy Spirit, and you get eternal life and a life of following Jesus. That's what we need to tell. They're ready. We just tell them the wrong stuff. And that's a, one of the reasons we have such weak Christianity in America, because a lot of people are coming to a false gospel. Or let's just say maybe an incomplete gospel. Can people get saved by saying God loves you and has a plan? I suppose. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes, right? But why not use the method that we're clearly given? I don't get it. Are we going to hurt people's feelings? Does it look like Paul gives a hoot? Does Jesus say, well, I don't want to make you feel bad? You know, they didn't kill him because he was Mr. Rogers. Killed him because he got in their face and would not give up. And who are the people that had that deep connection to him? Tax collectors, prostitutes, people who were seeking a way to get out of the muck and the guilt and the impurity, he realized they knew they needed him. And if we don't know we need him, we will never get him. That's the problem. For you fell to godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, now he's putting that adjective in front, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Isn't that cool? Whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief reproduces. If God is working on your heart and you realize you're, you are a sinner in the hands of a, of a wrathful God and you hear the gospel clearly, you see the solution. It's so wonderful. We've been singing about it. At the cross, at the cross, you know, I surrender my life. What does that mean? It means now he's number one. You ain't. You never were. He just thought you were. But worldly grief produces that. We see it all around. Suicide up. We have the answer, folks. We have the answer. If they knew God, nothing that the world can take away, nothing can they, they can't take away anything that's really useful, right? Paul says it, you can't take it with you, Second Timothy. What can you take with you when you die? Well, I think the treasure is... Two things, one main thing, and it kind of lines up with the two greatest commandments, your connection to God and your connection to other believers. You get that. Well, that must be what we're supposed to store up our self-treasures for, you know. That's what we're supposed to do. So hopefully, if you haven't learned anything, do you think repentance maybe is a good thing to go with? Is it going to tick people off? Well, I think we have a lot of people where that happens. You think about it, I don't have this in here, but remember the guy who was the, the precursor to Jesus? The one who came with the voice crying in the wilderness? Who was, what was that guy's name? John the Baptist. I think he actually was E-free, but we'll go with the Baptist. No, I'm just kidding. What was, his, what, what was his ministry about? What did he tell people to do? I mean, repent, repent, repent. Isn't it interesting that we get in Malachi and other places that there's just going to be this guy that's going to come in the power of Elijah to set the stage for the Messiah to come and do the work he came to do, and the very thing he sets the stage with is telling people to repent. 
You know how many times in the Bible Jesus, or excuse me, John the Baptist says that God loves you? Zero. That makes zero difference to somebody who hasn't repented. You get that? God's love's great, but it doesn't just kind of flow out there, right? It's something that you have to love back. You have to accept. That's true in all relationships, right? You know, young man wants to marry a young woman. Young woman doesn't love him. Doesn't work out too well, does it? You got to reciprocate these things. So think about it. John the Baptist comes on setting the stage of telling people you need to get cleaned up. That's what baptism was. It was the old mikvah that they did with every convert in Judaism. It's not something new. It, the newness is the pointing to the Messiah. So Jesus never told people he came to help them find their personal life plan. If you're looking for that, I'd quit. There's nowhere in the Bible that God's going to come to you and tell you what your calling is. Some people got it, but not that many. So how do I know what to do? I don't know. Are you that dull? What are your gifts? Where were you born? What does God need? Do that. If God wants to call you somewhere else, he will. I mean, you, th you can look at Acts, Paul, Saul, uh, and you see uh, Silas and Barnabas and those guys. They don't say, well, God, we don't know what to do now. Tell us which exit to get off. No, they just go. And then once in a while, the Holy Spirit shows up. Once in a while, he doesn't. You don't need that. You've got what you need. He also doesn't say to simply accept him or merely invite him into your heart. You know, those terms are never in the Bible. <laughs> it's just interesting. <laughs> Repent and believe the good news. Repent and follow me. That's what it's all about. And none of the apostles start this way. Why do we? I don't know. I, I don't know if it's trying to make people feel better. When the whole idea of the gospel is to make people feel bad to start off with, if you don't know the bad news, you won't look for the good. No, nobody likes this, right? And it, you know who, who doesn't like their word repent? People who don't know they're guilty. And I don't really care if you feel guilty. That's up to you. I just want to want you to cognitively realize you are. If you feel it, that's kind of good too. But Jesus doesn't say, you know, feel guilty and then repent. No, just realize that you are. So this is the true gospel. We have to give the message that people recognize their guilt. That's step one. Then experience his grace, which is the love, and live a life of willful obedience, which is gratitude. We see that in Colossians. Whatever you do in word or deed, everything should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, the Father. Through it. Why do we do good works? Because we have been saved, not to get saved. That's not the gospel. The only thing you have to do to be saved is to repent. Give your whole life to Jesus and say you're going to follow him forever and you're not first anymore. It's not really that hard to do, to think of. It might be hard to do. But anything worthwhile, especially eternal life, might have some challenges. So what it comes down to is too many people in our culture who come to Christ have not experienced God's grace. You know, if you tell them that God loves you and has a plan for your life, that's all you ever tell them, where's the grace? You don't need it. God loves me. He has a plan for my life. Well, great. Sounds good. Hope he shows up sometime. You know, you don't need anything. You don't, and that's experiencing God's grace is, is what makes you a Christian. It what makes you a follower of Jesus. You have to have that. 
that grace that washes over you and you realize that I'm unworthy, but Jesus has made me worthy. And now I'm in a position that God sees me as blameless before him because the sins are washed away. Well, if that really is, then gratitude comes really fast. Everybody will fall away who hasn't experienced that. We see that clearly in that. You, if you don't experience God's grace, you have not repented, so you're not really clean. No matter how clean you think you are, you can take all the showers you want. Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if you haven't experienced God's grace, you can't even see the kingdom of God. You probably, maybe some people believe a vestige of it, but it's not the real kingdom. It's not the real king that we're following. Jesus demands your life. And anybody who preaches anything else is selling something, I think. Then he began to denounce the cities that were the most, the most of the mighty works had been done. All these miracles. Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Isn't that amazing? Jesus himself saying, yes, the miracles, they, they show who he is, but they weren't that good at evangelizing people. They never are. Because what happens to an unregenerated heart that is not born again, that doesn't see the kingdom of God, they see a miracle, what do they want? Do they want Jesus? Nah, they want more miracles. That's the problem. I mean, here you got repent, 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 and it just amazes me that we have even studies out there that tell us to come to Jesus and you never see the word. I don't think you're coming to the true Jesus. You're coming to some picture of him that's not biblical. And if you, we've got to tell people this because it's, it's eternally dangerous to be doing this. We have to be clear. If you don't realize your place before a holy God, then you're never going to want to find the true solution. So, we're going to end the sermon here in about 40 minutes. No, it won't be long. But <laughs> we're just going to go quickly through some of these things because this is kind of the things you have. You get fear. We talked about that. Repent. We've hit that hard enough. We won't hit that again. Experiencing His grace. That's so key. Have you done that? Have you experienced the grace? We won't hit that, but it'll be permeated. And follow him. That's all in there. But we want to look at love, serve, worship, obey. These are all required for us to have a solid connection to God. You know, ultimately, it's up to God to decide who's in and who's out. All we're told is a tree is judged by its fruit. That's what we're supposed to do. Does it look like they believe? So fear. We, we have trouble with this. Proverbs has a couple good starts for us. Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why? Because if you don't fear the Lord, you're dull. I'm trying to say that word. The S word keeps coming out. <laughs> it's just a bad way to start. Think about was I, when Isaiah came into the throne room. Isaiah, good dude. One God picked to talk to all the people. He comes into the throne room, and there he is. And, and does he say, ah, God, this is cool. He gets on his belly. Woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm among a people of unclean lips. And, you know, something had to happen. I think it's a picture of the cross, really. You know, you get that seraph that gets the coal and puts it on his lips. Which is got to hurt, even in a vision, right? But he realized what his station was before a holy God. 
Moses, all these, same way. Usually God has to tell him, stand up. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> the other one, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. That's interesting. So what about fear? Are we supposed to be phobic? Are we supposed to be Yahweh-phobic? Or Christophobic? Well, for those who repent, through Christ, the punishment's paid, right? You've experienced the grace, so fear turns to what I would call reverence. You're not, you're no longer fearful of eternal damnation because the promise is that that's gone. First John puts it well, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What a good verse. So if you believe in Jesus, you repented, you've experienced His grace, you're living a light of gratitude, now it turns to reverence, right? And now it's essentially you have a connection with Yahweh as a loving Father and not an ultimate judge because the judgment is done. You won't be judged. Your name is in the book of life, as it says in the Bible. So that's fear. So get that. Yes, you should be fearful if you don't know him, but the fear turns to just this holy, it's what we do, we worship him. We'll look at that word in a minute. Love, quickly, misunderstood, used a lot, four different ver words in the Greek, but we, we put this, this is our working definition here at Grace Church, Christ-centered, willful, sacrificial devotion and obedience. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What a great, that's an easy one to remember too, right? If you love me, You'll keep my commandments. So we want to be obedient to show our love. So Yahweh's love for us is primarily shown by his grace. We've already hit that pretty hard. Loving God for people is primarily about trusting him, experiencing his grace, and serving him, worshiping him, and obeying him. These are all part of following Jesus. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says somebody comes to faith and doesn't worship. There's nowhere in the Bible that says people come to faith and don't want to get into his word and have a passion to know him through his revelation. Nowhere, zero places. Nowhere in the Bible where it says, follow me and do whatever the heck you want. That technically is not following him. If God's going this way and you're going that way, I ain't following. I, I don't care what definition you want to use. So it has a lot to do with obedience. Now, that's not true of all relationships, right? I, mean, I hope you don't say, hey, I, you know, hey neighbor, you want to come over and you know, we'll have some lemonade and you can obey me. Mow my lawn. Wash my dog. Not right now. We got a water shortage. But your dogs just have to stink for a while. But serve. You know, what does it mean to serve God? Well, this again is, is done by obedience, uh, apologetics, defending the faith. A lot of people do that. We do that a lot here. Evangelism, and just by serving others. You see that. What's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. And you can talk to me about this if you want, but if you take the Old Testament context of this, this is not just anybody. 50 times, more than 50 times, it's the one another's. Love one another, love one another, love one another. We get it in John 13. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, that you will have love for one another. That one another is people who made a commitment to Christ. That's where we start. Doesn't mean we're not nice to other people. The Good Samaritan's primarily about if there's an emergency situation, don't ask, get their Christian cards before you help them. But it was a Samaritan Israelite, so he was following the Ten Commandments too. So, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You know, that's in Thessalonians. 
that's the one and others we're supposed to. That's the serving others. But what does it mean to be obedient? Well, again, back to the abiding scriptures of John 15. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And, and what a, you know, that whole upper room discourse is cool. But, you know, I, I didn't put that in there, but just to kind of hit the whole flavor of the sermon, what happens to those branches he cuts off? They get thrown into the fire. This is Jesus. You know, maybe he was petting a lamb when he said it, but it's still the wrath of God. And that's what people get. God will punish evil eventually. And the only reason we don't get punished if we follow him is because of grace. Now, why do we do these things? Well, this is it. Do everything for God, primarily because you honor. Yes, we do it because it helps people. Have somebody in the church that's going through tough times financially, spiritually, emotionally. You want to help each other and even people outside. I'm not saying we don't open up, but that's the main thing, the family of God. But mainly you do it because you want to honor God. I don't know if it's not, maybe it's never happened to you, but I, I think I've done things that I thought honored God that people didn't take very kindly to. Perhaps I did them wrongly, but at least the motive was good. Uh, has it ever happened to you? Have, you? have you ever heard about Jesus? It's like, no, nah, you're not one of those. And of course, we're very right here in this church, and we say, one of those what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> one of those Jesus freaks. And it's like, well, if you're going to be a freak, that'd be the one I'd want to be. But, but it is because you honor God, right? That's why you do it. Whether or not it produces fruit is really up to the person in God sometimes. Then worship. You know, this is very important to God. Remember, the, the, the second commandment is all about worshiping. It's long, if you read it in Exodus 20. You know, the initial reason for the Exodus was worship? Moses goes, says, Yahweh says to Moses, go back to Pharaoh and announce to him, this is what Yahweh says, let my people go so they can worship me. Now, ultimately, what Yahweh meant is go and keep going, you know. Pharaoh kind of thought, well, is this going to be just like a 24-hour revival, or what are we doing here? Um, this was going to be ongoing, and he finds that out eventually, and then they have the whole plague thing going on. But that worship was so important, you weren't supposed to have no other gods before me. This is key. Worship, here's our working definition, a response of praise and thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? How about grace? Um, from the depths of our soul toward the God who is understood through his word. I, tell, I guarantee you this. Don't guarantee very many things, but this is one of them. That doesn't guarantee doesn't mean much in our culture, I realize. If you read your Bible more and study, you'll worship better. Because you understand God more. You'll pray better. This is good stuff. It's almost like he put it out there for us to read. Obey. This is about doing God's will, you know. It's about doing his will. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you and change the way you think, which is really repentance. Uh, then you will learn God's will. So we all fall short, right? Christ's death was necessary to save us from sin. But we obey not merely because it gives us the best outcome, well, I get heaven, but because it's the most complete demonstration of our love for him. And what is the greatest commandment? This is how you do it. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Don't tell me it's too hard. I mean, it is hard, but you might just not supposed to do it by yourself. 
So when it comes down to this, the wrong answer to the question of human nature makes the gospel of Christ unneeded. You can help yourself. You can just be better and maybe that'll work. The right answer, that you are a sinner in the hand of a wrathful God that will take care of evil, makes Jesus ultimately necessary. And we've got to get this stuff right. So we're to accept Jesus as Savior. Yes, understanding his guilt, repenting, experiencing his grace, but we're also to trust him as our Lord. Those who have truly repented and experienced his grace will desire to live a life of loyal, obedient gratitude toward him. If you don't desire to worship, if you don't desire to be in his word, if you don't desire to obey and serve him through his church, please step back and try to figure out why. Because if you've experienced his grace, we can't keep you out of here. And we're not trying to. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these uh, wonderful uh, things from Barna that gives us these questions and we are looking through what it means to think like your son May we realize who we are, that we by nature are children of your wrath because we have fallen and we need you. That's what the cross was all about. It was always planned. May we, as we continue to sing, may we realize that, that experiencing your grace is experiencing your love. And that is what you came for. Amen.